0: Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe.
1: And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you found the universe's finest podcast about music recorded onto plates from Safeway. We are going to launch right into a very special interview today.
2: Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word the same
3: only the echoes of my mind.
1: If you collect vinyl, you understand the power of tangible physical media. You know the thrill of finding a new record, staring at the cover art, pouring through the liner notes, and, of course, the disc itself. Holding sound, looking at the grooves, the label, the wax, the record is truly a piece of art far beyond the music contained within. There is perhaps no one who practices this craft with more skill and dedication than Michael Dixon. Based out of Tucson, Arizona, Mike expands the boundaries of vinyl art through creativity, collaboration, and innovation. He views a vinyl record as a blank canvas, which will hold unique, one-of-a-kind artifacts that are both beautiful and will play music for perpetuity. Drawing from a lifelong love of education, records, outsider art, and repurposing junk, Mike uses 1940s record-cutting lathe machines to handcraft sonic objects. He has made records out of upcycled plexiglass, laser disc. Picnic plates, CDRs, which are both playable on turntables and standard CD players, mirrors, placemats, x rays, and even chocolate. He has made records that use multiple sides, holes, groove patterns, lock grooves, and overlapping or concentric circles. He has made records that are absurdly entertaining and visually stunning.
0: On top of this, he runs a record label called People in a Position to Know that focuses on putting out records by artists that he believes in and records that are as individual as the bands. He's made ultra-limited releases for a huge range of big-name indie artists like The Flaming Lips, Dr. Dog, Ariel Pink, Mike Watt, The Microphones, and Grandaddy, as well as making essential music available to fans from bands that you should know, like The Graves, Sugar Candy Mountain, and Golden Boots. He has also put out music by several of this podcast's favorite artists, including Wooden Wand, Simon Joyner, and Luna. Oh, and when he's not doing that, he does short-run lathe cuts for bands, fixes lathe machines, is a DJ specializing in private press and bizarro honky-tonk records, and coolest and most important of all, educates kids at schools and libraries about the science behind sound and the evolution of sound recording.
1: We were fortunate enough to spend some time with Mike talking about his passion and his art, as well as some mutual interest. We strongly encourage you to check out his process and his products by visiting his websites, michaeldixonvinylart.com and pioptic.com, just P-I-A-P-T-K dot com. We guarantee you will find incredible, unique music and records that you cannot find anywhere else. Now it is another chapter in our continuing series of interviewing people who are truly vital to the vinyl record industry and fans of vinyl records all over the world. Here's our conversation with lathe master, label owner and vinyl artist Michael Dixon.
0: Hey Mike, how are you? This is Joe.
1: Hey Joe. Good to talk to you. You too. Yeah, thank you so much. We're we're real real informal. We'll just kind of start asking questions, but like you kind of live in the fringes of what vinyl is an artifact, not just as a medium, so to speak.
3: Oh yeah, definitely. And that's, that's really my, that that's the thing that draws me to vinyl. And the thing that draws me to, um, doing the record label and going out to these events and festivals and cutting records live on site is, is making an artifact, making an art piece. You know, I, I understand that there are people out there that are like vinyl sounds better or higher fidelity or a warmth or whatever, and totally, you know, totally agree. But that's not what I care about. Um, I care about the physicality of it, the physical interaction with it, the the artwork possibilities. And for people that don't know what I do, I use 1940s uh, vinyl record cutting equipment that was used in radio stations. And I make very short run records with them out of weird materials. I made records out of plexiglass, um, plastic picnic plates, x-rays. I made drum cymbals that'll play on your turntable. I made records out of chocolate, you know, weird picture discs, shaped records, all kinds of weird stuff, and usually in a very limited quantity. So I'm able to make do a lot of packaging and sort of conceptual, conceptual art releases that wouldn't be possible with a pressing plant. And, uh, and that allows me to work with bands that I really love, but who can't quote move units, unquote, you know, bands that most, a lot of people don't know about or don't care about, or the music is a little too, uh, out there to, uh, for the general public, you know, most of the, most of the bands and the artists that I work with, at least with P optic, my record label are on the kind of psychedelic, uh, folk side. I'm a big, I'm a big songwriter fan. Uh, but I'm also into people that are doing things a little bit different and, and have kind of a, a weird bend to their music. And, you know, I've worked with some big artists, Dead Meadow, Dr. Dog, The Flaming Lips, Mike Watt, Granddaddy. But <clears throat> I really love working with the my friends and the like small weirdo bands that literally nobody cares about and, uh, and kind of giving them a platform and – giving the handful of fans that they have some sort of unique piece that they can show their friends and be like, check out this golden boots record that plays from the inside out or has two concentric grooves or is made on this picnic plate or whatever. And, um, you know, a lot of times the fidelity is not the, the, the main focus and a lot, especially when I'm using weird materials, like a plastic picnic plate from Safeway is a 10 cent piece of crappy plastic and it's playable. You can listen to it. It's, it actually sounds pretty good uh, considering it's a picnic plate, but it's going to have higher surface noise and it's, you know, it's going to be weird, but
1: that's part of the, that's part of the charm of it. I think. Have you ever found something that you've wanted to make a record out of and you haven't been able to? Um, I mean, I, if, if it's flat and smooth, I've, almost definitely tried it.
3: <laughs> we tried to, we actually, we were, we were working at South by Southwest with my company, mobile vinyl recorders. That's the, that's the company that goes out to events and festivals. A lot of times for corporate clients, you know, like cliff bar, Toyota converse. And we go to their little parties or their festival, uh, pop-ups and, uh, cut records for whatever band they're working with there. And, uh, we were at South by Southwest on the, on the roof of whole foods. And, uh, my my business partner in that um chris chris door he used to work for whole foods and one of his former co-workers was now the manager down in austin and uh he came up and was like hey have you guys ever made a record out of cheese (laughs) they're like no so he went so he went down and got whatever the hardest cheese they could find and then threw it in the freezer (laughs) for a couple hours and uh, then brought it up, and we we tried to make a record out of cheese. Uh, spoiler alert it did not work. but you know we we've we've tried just about everything. Which band was it? At that party, we were cutting records for modern English, and uh, oh, I can't even remember who else, like kind of main band uh, that we were we were cutting for there at South by Southwest that year. We were just experimenting to see if we could even get. A viable groove and
0: uh we couldn't what other ones haven't worked
3: various types of plastic um i've tried i've tried making records on frisbees you know the uh the flat frisbee golf ones i've tried jesus placemats uh like laminated placemats that i i found a whole stack of them at a thrift store one time and was like oh, i can make records out of these but didn't get very good results on that um, you know most most of them I can get some sort of result. The only ones that are that I've actually got good enough results from that I've released are the ones that I, I mentioned earlier. I used to love doing plastic painting plates, uh, cause it was actually kind of crazy how good they sounded. If you just ignored the hiss underneath them and they're so cheap, it's kind of a, as far as like record cutters go, the it's, it's sort of an, a, uh, an entry level record cutting thing. That's kind of how I cut my teeth when I first started cutting records 13 years ago, was uh, cutting on these plastic picnic plates because they're cheap, they're low impact, so it's it's harder to ruin a needle on them and they're just so weird and cool. Uh, I also do a lot of records on the backs of CDs, a CD that'll play on your turntable and your CD player. You can fit like 40 minutes of digital audio and about three minutes of groove audio on a CD.
0: I remember when I was a kid, they would have those cereal boxes that would have records on the back of them uh, that you would cut out and, and play. Those were always a lot of fun. Just reminded me of the, the plates.
3: The kind of standard, that, uh, standard material that I use mostly is polycarbonate plastic, which is very similar to plexiglass. And a lot of times I do them in clear plastic squares because that's the cheapest way to get them. I can I can buy a sheet of plastic from my plastics place here in town, and they just throw it on a table saw and cut it into squares for me. And so a lot of times people think, they're like, oh, it's like a Flexi. And it it is square like a Flexi flexi was, but the majority of the materials that I use are a lot thicker. In fact, they're thicker than a standard seven inch. They're a little bit lower five um, than a press record, uh, but we've come a long way with it. I mean, the records that we cut 10 years ago I I go back and listen to it. And I'm like, Oh my God, this sounds horrible, but you know, it's been, it's a, it's a pretty young art form. Uh, there's a guy in New Zealand named Peter King. Who's the godfather of the, of the thing. He's the one he's been doing it since the late eighties. He did records for the BC boys and pavement and even Donovan. And I, he was probably one of the first people to figure out that, that this plastic was, was a viable source. And for probably 20 years he was your only option if you were a small band that wanted 20 copies he was the guy that would make them and uh you would have to you'd have to send him a check uh in the mail to new zealand and you'd have to either fax him or call him on the phone you have to send him a, a cassette or a cd he's by far the gold standard and and the biggest inspiration for for all of us yeah, he's he's the one that really kind of dialed in the whole uh, weird short run records that were affordable for a band to buy and then
1: sell at their merch table. You said you use equipment from the forties. Is there anybody that's making new lathe cutting equipment, or do you pretty much have to piece it together yourself, or you just have to find old ones?
3: So there's a guy in Germany that makes a that makes one, but he's a notorious notoriously hard to deal with he really kind of considers himself a gatekeeper. He doesn't like Americans and um, it's really hard to get him to sell you one. And you have to fly over to Germany to train with him. And if you piss him off in any way, which it's really easy to do, he cuts you off and you can't get needles. You can't get blanks. So most people can't buy one, but a lot of times they'll buy one from him and then he'll get mad and, cut them off so a lot of people don't want to mess with them because and i don't blame them and then there's also a new record cutter that came out on kickstarter earlier in the year that's not supposed to even start delivering until this december but you know as a kickstarter it may go long and that's it's more of a desktop it's a it kind of looks like an apple product it's like this it only does 10 inches and um the discs and the needles are proprietary and but it's stereo and it's it's a diamond cut which is a much higher fidelity cut it'll be a cool machine when it comes out but it's not out yet so really if you want a machine right now you have to buy a restored 1940s record lathe and i i sell them i restore them i train people on them most of these machines were used in the in the radio stations back before magnetic tape came in. Okay. Uh, because, you know, if you're, let's say you're in Tucson, where I live, um, you're not, the, the Tucson radio station is not going to pay somebody to research and broadcast international and national news every single night. They're going to get it from Associated Press and Edward R. Murrow in New York. But it's two o'clock in Tucson when it's five o'clock in New York. So they would have to pipe it in over the phone lines, record it, to a disc at two o'clock and then play it back at five o'clock. So a lot of radio stations had at least one, if not two of these machines. And um, once magnetic tape came in and they were able to reuse the medium because the the discs were expensive, you know, there was the equivalent of 40 or 50 bucks uh, per disc. And that's a lot of money to throw away every day because you can't reuse it. So once magnetic tape uh, came in and, I don't know if you know this, but the Nazis were the ones that invented magnetic tape. Once Americans found the uh, magnetophone in Berlin, brought it back, reverse engineered it, and then started making uh, magnet, uh, reel-to-reel tape machines, they just took these old record cutters, put them in the basement. And then in the 60s, when when they're going through and cleaning out the basement, they're like, why do we even have this record cutter? Let's get and throw this thing away. But one of the old school guys would usually go, Oh no, wait, I love that machine. I'll take it home. And then he just puts it in his basement and it stays there, you know, and, but they, they've been slowly popping up with eBay and, and whatever. A lot of times they kind of just come to me because I'm the guy that restores them. I'm the guy that trains people on them. I'm the guy that uses them. So if you find one of these machines in grandpa's basement and you Google it, you're probably going to come across one of my like eight websites about using it. So a lot of times people will contact me and be like, Hey, I've got this thing, you know, do you know anybody that wants it or do you want to buy it? My business partner, Chris and I have probably restored over a hundred
1: of these machines over the years. How many do you operate?
3: Uh, At at the studio, we've got four machines uh, in a row that we can all run off the same audio source. So if you send us a, a track and you're like, Hey, I want 50 copies of this, We can run it through four machines and make four copies at a time. Then we've got another four machines that uh, are in the mobile vinyl recorders uh, van that we take out to these events and festivals. We've got one in storage in Nashville right now that we use for cutting records at the Nashville soccer club games. We're kind of their, we're we're kind of their mascot. Uh, So we'll be standing in the next to the goal. And whenever somebody scores, Anybody on the on the Nashville team scores, we start recording, we get the audience noise, we get the like play by play and the recap call, and then they they award the disc of the recording to the player of the game. That's awesome. Yeah, well we we've only done one one gig so far. We're we're on contract for the whole season, but they only got one game in before the whole quarantine thing happened. And then I probably got another eight or nine that are in either ready to sell or um, in sort of in repair mode. It it always kind of fluctuates. I've also got two that I take if I'm going to like a fly gig. Like I'm probably going to do this little festival up outside of uh, Homer, Alaska this summer. So I've got a little really portable thing that I can uh, uh, check in luggage on a plane that's self-contained may also at some point be going to Greenland A friend of mine is sort of the cultural ambassador of Greenland and she works with an orphanage out there that is music centered and it's pretty well funded by the Danish government. So they, uh, they take the kids out all over the world to perform, to kind of share Greenlandic culture. And then they bring in artists and musicians and people from all over the world into this orphanage for a month to work with the kids. And so uh, hopefully this summer,
1: Uh, once this all goes away i'm going to be going over there to uh, work with the kids when you're playing the sound is it like a equal distance time like it's real time playing as the real is the real time like the lathe kind of goes into the plastic or whatever as the song's playing is that correct
3: oh yeah yeah it's real time so basically you take your audio source which usually for us is either a laptop or an ipad but it could be a microphone. It could be uh, your grandma's answering machine. Whatever, as long as it has an output, it goes from your audio source into uh, into an amplifier, and the amplifier goes into what what they call a cutter head. And the cutter head is essentially a little speaker, but instead of having a big paper cone that kind of pushes the sound waves out through the air, it focuses the sound waves down to the tip of a little tiny ruby cutting needle, and the the needle is moving back and forth. Uh, basically cutting, scratching or cutting the sound wave into the disc. So you've seen, I mean, obviously being in a podcast, you know what a sound wave looks like, right? If you took a record groove, laid it out flat and then squished it, it would look just like the sound wave in SoundCloud or Pro Tools or whatever, you know, audio editing stuff that you're working with. The groove is actually a physical representation of the
1: sound wave. One of the things that I think like when I was first kind of looking you up and the Eulerian circle lathe cuts, which are just fascinating and beautiful, I'm sure you can do a better job of explaining them, but you know, they have multiple holes and multiple groove patterns and overlapping concentric circles. How did you start on that process? Can you just talk about those? Because I think anybody who hasn't seen them will definitely put up pictures, but they are just the coolest looking things.
3: A Eulerian circle is... The old school name of a Venn diagram, and that's kind of that's what they look like. They're they'll have multiple holes, and it's on clear plastic. So when you cut a groove on one side, it doesn't affect the other side. So you can a lot of them look like the grooves are overlapping, but it's only a visual trick. They'll they'll still play without the grooves touching each other. Um, but the the way that I started doing those was a total total mistake. I used to have 12 people working for me doing short run records for bands. Uh, Once I kind of started doing it and I got it dialed in, I realized, ooh, I'm making, you know, $40 an hour cutting these records for bands. If I hire 10 people and I pay them $12 an hour, then I'm making $28 an hour, you know, on top of it. But what I didn't realize was that nobody had the patience that I have. Nobody knew the machines the way that I did. Nobody knew the techniques the way that I did. Nobody cared as much as I did. Nobody could do them as fast. And so I was having a ton of mistakes and I ended up losing a ton of money in the first three months that I sort of ramped this business up. But one of the, one of the real money losers was that one of my employees drilled out a, because the, the plastic just comes in squares with no center holes and you have to drill you have to drill the center holes but there is not a drill bit that's exactly the right size for the center pin of a record uh, record player so you have to get one that's just a little bit smaller and then kind of wiggle it uh, around to give it a little extra a little extra space and this guy went through maybe 200 records and wiggled them way too much so they are really sloppy on the on the center pin and you know it's like 250 worth of plastic that i was gonna have to throw away but i you know i was looking at it and i was like well maybe if i drill a hole on either side of the oversized hole i can at least get some testers you know i can while i'm dialing in the sound because the 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 sound is not Ready to go. As soon as you put on a new track, you have to really go in and equalize it and test it and dial it in. So it it takes a lot of setup. And I was like, well, I can at least use these to set up other jobs. And I drilled a hole on either side. And it, it gave me this like weird, weird pattern. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And so one night me and uh, Dimitri from Golden Boots just hung out down at the studio drinking beer and, uh, and playing with different hole patterns. And that was really kind of what got me started on doing all of the, the Eulerian circles and exploring the visual, uh, the visual art of these circles. It all, it all started from a fuck up. And, and honestly, a lot of, a lot of my favorite things that have, that I've done, with my record label Piotic and I've released over 300 records at this point a lot of them come from me making a mistake or trying to reuse something that um, really should have been thrown away because it
1: was because it was a it was a fuck up Is there anybody that does anything like that? I mean it just seems so unique. I think at this point I've kind of established myself as the guy
3: that does it. I would imagine there's probably somebody in, you know, with a record cutter in their basement that, that is doing it, but I haven't really seen anybody else. That's as high profile. I mean, it's kind of, it's my thing. So I'm probably one of the only people that does it, or at least I hope I am. (laughs) So I, I have started doing a few of them for hire for people. Um, Some of the more basic designs, like just the two overlapping uh, kind of figure eight, ones i've done i've done some for other bands and other labels uh to just let them release them to their their fans because a lot of most people haven't ever seen them so it's kind of a there's no point in me like just hoarding all these ideas and uh not letting anybody else use them because i only have so much of a reach so if i can at least you know like i just did one for uh, a record label in indianapolis named uh called romanus records Uh, i just did some for them and i worked record label in Indianapolis as well called Joyful Noise Recordings. And I do a lot of Gulerian Circle stuff for them. Like I've done records for Sunlux and Kishi Bashi and Jad Fair. I've done several for Dale Crover from the Melvins. Uh there's another one of those coming out here pretty soon through Joyful Noise.
1: Yeah, they're beautiful. I um once I figure out if I'll still have a job or won't get furloughed, I saw that you had some of those the six sided records. Oh yeah. Uh, still available. And I'd like to get one just to to frame up on my wall because it's just they're truly works works of art
0: it's so cool to be able to experience something in so many different ways like it's something you can touch something you can listen to something you can look at it's amazing and just the tactile experience of vinyl in general is already so great what you're doing on top of that is really wonderful
3: uh so the record that you're talking about the the great six sider that was me and dimitri manos from golden boots the that was the first one that I did outside of the, the fuck up one. Basically we we realized that um, that's, that's the only Eulerian circle I've ever done where the grooves actually overlap. So the, on the same side, it will hit another groove. It will, it will cut through another groove. Um, and every time that it cuts through the, the other groove, it makes this chirp. And so it goes chirp, 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 chirp. chirp. And while we were kind of experimenting with it, Dimitri recorded that chirp on his phone and then set it up as a kind of a drum loop and then recorded a bunch of sort of like ambient weird noise that fit with that chirp. And so each one of those great six-siders is unique because none of the, all of the grooves have a different part of this longer noise piece. So none of them are, are the same at all. And they all end in lock grooves so you'll have like a infinitely repeating lock group on each of the six tracks. And th- that record actually just got randomly got picked up by some blog. Somebody wrote about it and then a couple other places uh, re reblogged it. And I went and looked at the there on YouTube. There's an actual um, there's a YouTube video of me playing the thing. And one of my favorite comments is cool idea. It's sad that the music sucks so bad.
1: But you can't please everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Internet.
3: Yeah, I know, right? Uh, it's you know, it's they're forty-five seconds to a minute tracks, and they aren't intended to be, you know, it's intended to be some sort of weird art piece, and it's it's funny when somebody just decides that, you know, I don't like this, so I'm gonna just shit all over it. But it's like why why even bother? Uh but you know, I guess
2: it's just cause it's the internet, right?
1: I kind of get obsessed with lock grooves anyways, because they're there's something just endlessly fascinating that was kind of a bad pun, but you get what I'm saying. I mean, they're just they're just such a a cool way to end a record.
3: The first uh, lock groove that I ever remember, like or you know, intentional lock groove that I remember uh, is on the I think it's the fourth side of metal machine music uh, by Lou Reed. one of the one of the sides ends in this mm-hmm. lock groove where it's just an infinitely repeating chirp. And I remember having that record when I was in high school and just being like, this is incredible. And uh, so once I started cutting, you know, like, like I was saying, we have to set up these, we have to set up the audio. And so if you send us a track, it's going to take us probably an hour, an hour and a half of going through, dialing in all four of the machines, equalizing it. You know, making sure that the noise floor is low, adding a little bit of uh, high end here or dipping out some low end. And a lot of times as we're cutting, we're just running the audio through and we'll actually create, you know, lock grooves just by like locking off the record to go test it. And for a long time, we had a tape deck that was set up. So if we ever caught a really interesting lock group, which a lot of times, you know, you'll get somebody going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, just accidentally. And uh, <laughs> so we, we, would, we would save these cassettes and uh, we would save those lock groups onto a cassette. And I was going to do like a, uh, a release of it. And then somebody came down to this, the studio on a tour and stole it. Oh no. Then I I have no idea what happened to it. So like the the whole thing died, but but I've I have I do a lot of playing with lock grooves. Um you remember when King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard put out that uh kind of open source uh record that anybody could do whatever they wanted with? Yeah. 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 So um I knew that a lot of record record labels were going to release it on a, you know, on a press record or whatever. I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I, it was, I did a, a, uh, a Eulerian circle that had 20 lock groups. So it was like 1.8 second (laughs) loops and, and every one of them was different. I would just, I went and cut the the whole record up into 20 second chunks and just put it on random. And I would just let it play. I would uh, drop the needle, go, 1,001, 1,002 and then lift because it's 1.8 second rotation at 33 RPM and so I'd cut like 1.8 seconds and then lift it and then move it over and then do the same thing so uh, there, the the version that I released was just 20 lock grooves with, uh, with no run up.
0: The most frustrating record of all time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh yeah. But it's but it's cool. It's one of those Eulerian circles. It's, you, you should look it up if you haven't seen
1: it. It's pretty good looking. You could do like a um a political speech or something like that like a four score four score four score and then you have to lift it up to the next one. <laughs> you can go through a whole speech like that with endless locked grooves It'd be awesome. It'd
0: be nice to have a compilation album of just locked grooves.
1: It, you know, you could take speaking of Lou Reed, take Lou Reed and um what's the what's the live record, uh, Take No Prisoners. You know how he's there's all those kind of like one-liners like, you know, toe fucker or, Radio Brooklyn and stuff like that. You could just take the 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 most mean moments of Lou Reed and cut them into to lock Grooves, and that would be your whole that would be your whole record. Yeah,
3: yeah, lock Grooves, are, are it's hard to nail them <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, like to to just get that one one thing that you want. But uh, yeah, it, it, it a lot of times again the accidents are the are sometimes the best things. I, I love I'm I'm a big proponent of making making mistakes because uh, a lot of times they turn into the the thing that you would never have done intentionally. And that's what makes it special,
1: because it's something that nobody's thought of, because why would you? What's the um, strangest mass produced vinyl art that you've encountered? You know, we talked about metal machine music. Have you have you ever like run across something that was you know, not what you're doing, but like that was a big band had released that you thought, wow, that was really cool.
3: Yeah, I think Merge released like a was it the Shout Out Louds? There, the ice record where they basically made a uh, mold and you could uh, you could buy the mold, put water in it, and then freeze it, and it was a it was an ice record. I but I think they might have. I think there was an artist that actually did that first, and uh, they sort of lifted the idea for that one, uh, from this traveling record, uh, this traveling record art thing called on the record. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, you know, obviously Jack White, he's done a lot of cool, interesting things, uh, but he doesn't need any publicity, but (laughs) trying to think the mass producing anything that's interesting, You have to have a lot of money and you have to have a lot of people that are willing to buy it in order to make the setup for it worthwhile. Like the Flaming Lips blood record, that's pretty, pretty fascinating because all of the every copy of that had to be encased in a box that was impenetrable because it was a biohazard. It had like Miley Cyrus's blood and the dude from Coldplay's blood and everybody in the Flaming Lips's blood. And so in order to even have it legal, they had to make it so impenetrable that it would not leak. And you couldn't, you can't even, you can squish it around and you can hear the the liquid inside moving, but you can't, but you can't actually see it. Um, And they weren't allowed to ship it. Uh, because it was a biohazard. So when you bought it, you had to pay like $400 delivery fee. And they had a dude in a van that just drove all around the country and would bring it to your door and drop it off personally.
1: <laughs> I really love the commitment to that idea. Did he have any, any Wayne Cohn's blood on the side just as a side hustle? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I
3: wasn't I wasn't one of the people willing to
1: pay $3,000 for a copy of it
3: however much it cost. It was, it was ridiculously expensive.
1: <laughs> one of the other uh, things I think Joe and I were really interested in when we were going through your stuff is how often the artist and the fans kind of interact with, with your creations or the products you're, you're selling. You know, I saw one thing where the person who bought it had to do a paint by number to complete it, to get on block or whatever the MP3s and or, or Simon Joyner coming and painting a bunch of different covers for his tour single. I mean, that stuff to me makes it so incredible because it's so unique and so, you know, fascinating. But where where does that kind of inspiration spring forth from? I mean, is that just your own kind of obsession with different unique things or, or you know, because I just don't think record labels do that where they expect the artist and the fan to participate. It
0: creates more of a connection between them too.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know,
3: I... As a conceptual artist, like I'm not a visual artist, but like it just putting something out and letting people consume it isn't really all that interesting to me. I really prefer to have as many things as I do as possible be a collaboration between the person that's buying it and myself or the person that's making it and myself or all three of us and so that's as it's it's interesting that you pick up on that, but like yeah i throughout the 300 records that I've released, I've done a ton of things where like you were talking about the paint by numbers. Uh, That was sort of a response to the kind of the idea of these obsessive record collectors that everything is, you know, I don't even want to play this record because it's, it's gotta be pristine. And so what I did was I released this record with a paint by numbers for golden boots. And then I also did another one very similar for a band called SM wolf. And it, it came in two parts. The part that you got first that had the paint by numbers and then the either the watercolors or the markers. And then the second part that you only got, it was a bonus record that you only got if you did the paint by numbers and sent me a photo of it. So if you marked up the the record, you ruined its like, you know, pristine value, but you didn't have the complete thing. You were missing the bo- the, the disc that went with it. And if you painted it, then you were ruining the pristineness of it, but you got the complete package, but you couldn't have both. And I'm fascinated by like that kind of thing, because I I make a lot of the stuff that I make is extremely limited. And, you know, sometimes people will... Buy them and then they sell out immediately, and then people put them on Discogs for or eBay for three or four hundred dollars. And it's like I don't even make that much money on the entire run for all the work that I do. Most of my record label stuff I just break even on because I try to give the you know they're they're so labor intensive and uh, costly, and I give so many copies to the bands that I don't make any money on. And then some asshole that just happened to be like uh, able to get in one of the first hundred copies turns around and makes 500 bucks on it. So it was kind of a, it started off as a play on that. But like a lot of times I love, you know, these artists that I'm working with, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of them. Like that's why I want to work with them because I really respect and, and like what they do. And I want to be, I want to, I want to collaborate with them. And so, you know, I do a thing called the instant merch machine where a band that is either on my label or that I know personally or that I reach out to comes through Tucson and um, they'll either come down to the studio and record live to, to eight lanes. A lot of times we'll set up eight machines. They'll play one song. We get eight copies. They play another song. We get eight copies. And then that night they say uh, they stay at my house and we all sit around and, and make handmade covers for them. That's so cool. I love being able to interact with these songwriters that I like or or getting feedback from the people that are buying my stuff. You know, and I have a lot of regular customers, a lot of a lot of people that, you know, I see their names roll through my PayPal every time I do a new release. And I love interacting with those people. I did a pen pal series back when I first started. I had my P.O. box in Olympia on the website and I would get some Weird fan mail. You know, people sending me, whether it was demos, a lot of times it was just some random kid in Ohio, you know, latched onto the fact that all my stuff was really strange and bizarre. And they're like, I'm strange and bizarre. Let me be strange and bizarre at this strange and bizarre dude. <laughs> they would just send me some insane shit, you know, and like really crazy. Uh, letters that had obviously taken them a long time to, to make. And, and I love that. It was, it was the highlight of my day. It was going to the post office and getting this like crazy ass fan mail. Did you keep them all? Oh yeah. I've got a, I've got a pretty good like scrapbook, if you will. I got a drawer at the, uh, at the studio that's got all this stuff. Good. And uh, you know, photo, like this, this girl used to send me photos of her and her parrot and her dog with the different records you know the, there were printed out photos from Walgreens or whatever, and uh, all real strange, uh, but but I loved it. And when I moved to Tucson seven years ago, I didn't have a mailing address where people could send stuff back to me, and so I stopped getting that. And I and I was thinking about it one day. I was like, man, I wish I could get more of that. And so I put out a thing on my email list: Hey, here's my here's my address. You send me something. You know, I explained like the kind of stuff that I used to get and how much I liked it. You send me something and I'll send you a record for free that nobody else has. Like the only way to get it is through this pen pal series. And I got a couple of artists and they're both going to remain nameless. But they're two of the bigger, bigger artists that I worked with to donate a song to this project. And the only way you could get it was to send me some sort of weird package and I got some really crazy shit, uh, from people, you know, that that were into that kind of interaction. I got, I mean, I probably got 40 packages. I mean, I just, I, I, in general, I'm an extrovert. I love people. I love interacting with people. I love hearing people's stories. Uh, I love seeing what other people's ideas are because you know, my, we all have an idea of what we think would be cool. But when you run it through the filter of somebody else's perspective, a lot of times you get something that's way more interesting. And so I like doing that both ways. I like having people run their ideas through my filter and vice versa. And the more that I can do that and the more I can understand different people's perspectives, the the more interesting life becomes. And so I, I, I do that as much as I can, especially through my through my art, through my record label. Because I want, you know, I want to always be changing. I want to always be doing new things. I want to keep learning new skills. You know, what you what you might also notice as you go through my catalog, and there, there's not a really good resource for the, like, the 300 and something records that I've released where they're all in one place where you can kind of see them. But if you go back through the catalog, you'll see that things have sort of phases you know it's like okay here I'm doing a lot of letterpress and I'm doing a lot of like picnic plates and then here I'm cutting records on old laser discs and I'm doing upcycled you know things with painting and then here I'm moving into the Eulerian circles and then you know there's everything kind of ebbs and flows through these different things that I get into silk screening and whatever I none of my you know I'm not a professional fine art silk screener. I don't ever want to be. I love doing it. But once I've kind of learned how to do it, I don't necessarily need to master it. You know, I'm not trying to sell you a $400 Grateful Dead poster. You know, I'm, I want all the things that I do to have kind of fingerprints and smudges, things that say, hey, this was somebody that is real. This is somebody that did this with their own time and their own money. And they like, they put their own sweat equity into it. And that's, that's really what my label is. It's like my sweat equity. It's, it's what it's got my fingerprints all over it. People that have bought records for me in the past. A lot of times they knew who I am because I put my personality into the, the emails that I send out and the, the way that I describe the items. I don't think there's a lot of record labels out there. They're, at least bigger record labels, not, you know, there, there are plenty of sort of uh, boutique labels like myself that really put the personality of the owner and the curator into it. But that's, that's the kind of stuff that I really love is when I can I – know, I know the person that's making my thing, and I know uh, how they connect with these artists, and I know that, that they put a lot of care into making the, the, the product – you know one of the one of the record labels that I work with a lot is called Almost Halloween Time in Italy and it's this one guy named Luigi and he hand paints an original oil painting for every single record that he does and what he'll do a lot of times is he'll he'll listen to the um, he'll listen to the record he'll get the lyrics from the band and he'll kind of he'll latch on to certain phrases or certain lyrics or certain concepts and then he'll use those to to paint a uh, unique cover for every single physical copy of the record. He only does 100 of each one so um, each one will have there will be 100 different paintings for each record and I love collaborating with him because it's always interesting to see what he latches onto about this record that I'm releasing. So I've done... Uh, some floating action records with him, uh, a Graves record, SM Wolf, American Monoxide, Michael Now. And he'll go in and he'll find these weird lyrics that I didn't even notice, but he'll paint an entire series of paintings based on this one little thing. I, I love collaborating with other artists. A lot of the times, the the releases that I'll do, I'll try to find another label to, co- to co-release it with me. And I'll say, hey, look, you do your own variation of it, whether you're going to silkscreen the cover or you're going to make uh, an extra cassette that goes with it. I'll do my own variation with a bonus lathe cut or with, you know, some extra thing to go with it. And it allows fans of the band to say, okay, you know, it, they check out what I'm doing. They check out what this other, what this other label is doing. And it kind of, it spreads the art and at least gets everybody a little bit extra, uh, you know, a, a, a few extra eyes on, on what you're doing. Because I think that the the art that's being created sort of in this tiny vacuum where nobody really cares or knows about it, that's the art that's important. You know, the shepherd fairies and the whatever, that's cool that people can relate to that on a big big scale, but eventually all that kind of gets diluted. So if you you find these little tiny pockets of bands doing weird things or painters doing strange things or record labels releasing whatever they're into, that that's what really makes life interesting and rich. And so I want to be a part of that and I want to I want to promote these bands, I want to promote these labels. And try to get as many eyes on their stuff and my stuff as possible so that, you know, hopefully it will inspire other people to do weird things because I, I love weird art and, uh, the, the weirder,
1: the better, and the weirder, the people that are making it, the better, as far as I'm concerned, you kind of nailed it as far as, you know, record collecting can can be kind of a grubby business, you know, with labels putting out certain stuff and this, you know, we're going to make these limited and it's going to be all this stuff. But part of what makes it great is, you know, that unique collectability, which is also the same thing that kind of kills it and makes it not fun and makes it make you feel like, ah, oh, this is, this isn't really worth it. But like what what you were saying about finding the the spot where art exists for the sake of art or for the sake of, discovering something new as opposed to this art exists because we want to make it rare because we want it to be more valuable or collectible and i think that's so important because you are doing such unique and cool and often rare things but it's not to force that you know for some sort of ulterior motive and i think that's a huge problem with with records and record collecting
3: yeah and and honestly it's a that whole thing is a double-edged sword for me and i'm I get people complaining and, and accusing me of stuff because they're like, you know, you you release this Dr. Dog thing and there's only 200 copies and you know that uh, more than 200 people want it or you, this flaming lips thing or whatever. I never, ever artificially limit the the amount that I make. You know, I, I always do the best. I don't want something that I make to sell out immediately. I want to make enough that anybody that wants it can have it. But the problem is, especially with bigger artists, I can't, I, I, there's no way that I'm going to get an unlimited license from the flaming lips or from Dr. Dog or from granddaddy to just, yeah, make as many as you want, keep it in print forever. They're not going to do that. The the things that they're going to give me are going to be things that they want to limit the amount that is out there. They want it to be exclusively for super fans. They don't want it to be the next like full length record Um, You know, they have record labels for that. So number one, I can't get permission from the artists to do big runs. And number two, making big runs of things is not really all that fun for me. Right. I don't want, you know, being a, just a a distributor of some mass produced item is usually not really, it's just not, not fun. You know, I do release press records, uh, mass produced items, 300, 500, But, you know, I always try to put a personal touch to it. Silk screen sleeves, bonus lathe cut, you know, things like that, because that's what makes it interesting for me. And I can't mass produce 5000 bonus lathe cuts, you know, so it's a it's it's this line that I walk. Yeah, I understand that in the collector fetish market, there are people that are going to buy it up and immediately resell it. And, you know, they're, I, I've done things in the past to try to limit that as much as possible, but it's just not something I can I can control. That's why a lot of the bands that I work with, you know, I they're smaller bands and I can make 50 of them and I know they're not going to sell out right away. You know, there are records that I released 40 copies of 10 years ago that I still have available because I've only sold five of them. And, you know, and that's fine by me. Like at some point, maybe somebody's going to randomly come across this thing and buy it. And that happens a fair amount, you know, I'll, I'll get an order for something. I'm like, holy shit, I haven't sold one of these in six years, (laughs) but that's, you know, that's, that's part of the fun, you know, like, it's like, who the, who the hell is buying this record by, you know, some band from Ohio that broke up the day after I released it, but it's great when that happens. So yeah, you know, it's I do the best I can to kind of manage all of that stuff, but in the end, I it's not my like uh, I don't know. It's just I I can't always control it, and I've gotten the I've gotten this weird criticism sometimes that I don't really think is founded because you know as as you said. I'm not one of those labels that's like, okay, we're releasing 10,000 copies of The Gambler on record store day on white vinyl or whatever. It's like, really, do you need 10,000 more copies of The Gambler, and do you have to really consider that to be limited edition? You know, it's like (laughs) vinyl me, please, which is fine as a as a subscription. You know, if you if you don't want to have to think about what you're going to get. If you want to just let somebody else pick it out for you, then then that's great. But it's like the idea that they have the limited yellow version of this record. It's like, they've got 15, 20,000 subscribers. So that vinyl me, please yellow version is by far the like most mass produced version of that record. And so the bigger labels pushing out this like limited edition Uh, thing for record store day is kind of frustrating because you know it's like a lot of they've they've co-opted the whole record store day thing to be more about we've got this stuff in our back catalog that isn't really worth putting out into full distribution we you know we maybe sell three thousand copies of it over the next five years but if we make five thousand copies for record store day and promote it like this one, some, you know, one, one time opportunity, we can move right through and It's kind of gross, you know, and it's like weird capitalist, you know, I'm not an anti-capitalist, but it's just like taking advantage of the, the collector mentality.
0: Yeah. And uh, I guess it is what it is. And taking something away from somebody who would really cherish it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and taking away spots from, you know, record store day 10 years ago or whenever they started, it was a lot of independent labels, labels like mine that were able to get records into Record Store Day and get a little bit of promotion and hype for those things. But now it's like, "Oh, you don't you're not doing, I don't know, the new Boney Vare? If the artist is not a household name, Record Store Day doesn't even let you participate. If they've never heard of it, then then they don't
0: give a shit. A new version of Rumours.
1: Yeah, right, you know. Yeah, I got a bonus track or yeah, but this one's like a uh, you know gold color, Joe. Right?
3: Or Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, whipped cream and other delights on Picture Disc. You know, it's like God that record's available at every <laughs> fucking thrift store in the entire world.
1: Do we need to make
3: twenty thousand copies on
1: Picture Disc? Maybe you should take one of those and see if you can lathe cut through that and <laughs> make a whole new, a uh, whole new version of that. That's probably cheaper than those Safeway plates. Yeah, seriously
3: there i've been to plenty of record stores that just had a wall of whipped cream and other delights do you and we went to we went to store in mobile alabama mobile records and um they they had a whole wall and we started talking to him he's like well you know about the the crate digger trick right and i'm like what do you mean well you know like when you go into a thrift store almost 100 there's going to be a copy of that in the bins what you do is you take that copy and you put it in the lower left-hand corner of the uh, record bin. And that tells the next guy that's coming in to dig that that record bin has been quipped or it's been creamed. That there's already been somebody there looking through the through the bins and they already got all the good stuff. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. That's really cool. So, you know, pass it along. That way we can ne- – next time you go to a uh, – to a thrift store and you see that in the lower left-hand corner of the bands, you know, that it's already been whipped.
1: (laughs) Do you have like a dream project as far as an artist you would want to collaborate with, or maybe something that you could take their, their project or their album and rework it or re-release it with your own personal twist?
3: You know, honestly, I've, I've worked with so many of my bucket list artists. It's, uh, I can't even think of anybody that, I'm just dying to work with now I'll flip this question around and, and kind of tell you some of the bucket list artists that I've gotten to work with. Uh, You know, I've talked about granddaddy, Dr. Dog, flaming lips. Those are, those were definitely like the big bands that like, I really, really loved growing up and wanted to, wanted to work with There are bands like the fruit bats and Jim white and um, Mike Watt, obviously, one of my all-time favorites, uh, Luna. I got to do a a record with Luna, who is one of my, uh, like bucket list bands. A lot of these bands, I'm still trying to get more, uh, I'm still trying to like work with them again. You know, I really can't think of any artists that I'm actively pursuing right now. There there are plenty of artists that I really like that I'm kind of staying, staying in touch with and trying to get something together. But I think I've, pretty much um, checked off most of the bucket list that's even remotely reasonable for a label like mine
0: when you're out looking for music now what what types of things do you look for? Is it private press? I know that you're you have a pretty good collection of that or what are you what are you trying to buy personally
3: yeah I mean to be honest with you i don't I don't go to record store I don't buy new records anymore really mostly I go through thrift stores and uh you know i here recently my tastes have tended to be more like outlaw country, sixties, seventies country. Uh, I like I've gotten more and more into instrumental stuff, you know, so I'm just kind of digging for, you know, classics that I don't already have. Um, I do love private press country. Uh, I DJ that stuff, you know, because there's Back in the 60s and the 70s, there were a lot of these guys that, you know, wanted to be songwriters, and they'd be like, oh, I just wrote this song up, and Johnny Cash could sing this one, and they'd go into a local studio, you know, get the the session guys to knock out a real quick, uh, you know, three-hour version of a single, and then they press up 300 copies and send it off to radio stations or try to get it to publishing companies, and these things end up in thrift stores and, you know, record collections that get donated or sold away so you can find some really crazy private press country stuff where you know they think that they're the next roger miller or the next uh chris christopherson and they aren't but they're they're really they're really hilarious in the in the way that they're like putting these songs together i love collecting those kind of things finding um private press LPs you can all you can spot one from a mile away because the artwork's always so bad <laughs> you know I, I really love song poems which if you have you done a, a podcast on that yeah. yeah we did one of those yeah yep. I mean podcast I mean uh, song poems are, are ridiculously fun a lot of those are really bad you have to really um dig deep to to find the gold on those but even the even the bad ones are are worth listening to but yeah, I mean that's that's mostly what I'm I'm looking for, and I and I I buy records from my friends, like the uh, the artists that I've worked with in the past, or or my friends in Tucson or around the around the country. You know, the nice the nice thing is I have I've worked with so many artists over the years, and so many of them are kind of transient that no matter where I go, I've got somebody to hang out with in. London or Scotland or Omaha or whatever. And so I'm always kind of like leaning on those people to, to tell me about the, the things that they're listening to. And so I get a lot of stuff kind of uh, passed along that way because I, I trust their taste. And a lot of times it's pretty spot on.
1: Have you ever thought about like, and I know this is kind of a whole nother, legal ball of wax but have you ever thought about like putting out like a compilation of like the private press hillbilly stuff or have you ever you know been inspired to do that i know it's it's very different than releasing a album of a willing participant that you have permission but
3: oh yeah i've got i mean that i was i was planning on doing that for as a series and that's why i've been kind of compiling these things but yeah legally it's kind of tough to do and you know i've i've also considered just kind of going through and releasing them digitally uh just kind of putting them out in the ether for people to download and but i haven't really thought about that a lot recently i kind of gave up on the idea until i can figure out a a way to do it without screwing anybody over or getting myself in trouble i think probably the best way for me to do that would be to approach like light in the attic or the guys that do the hillbillies in hell series yeah the iron mountain yeah like curate one you know or at least or just pass them along some of these some of this gold that i found and let them deal with it you know it's not a it's not really a a headache that i i want to uh um take on at the moment and that but that goes back to like You know, I don't want to be a real record label. (laughs) I don't want to try to be the next pop or the next merge. You know, there are definitely times over the last 15 years that I've been running this thing where I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to try to break this band. And I put I put a bunch of money into PR or, you know, whatever. And it never works. And it's never fun. It's always just been, God, I hated that experience. Even if it had taken off and it had been successful, I still hated to do it. And so I'd say about four or five years ago, I just said, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm only going to release stuff as a limited license and, you know, do things in a way that's fun. And doesn't take it seriously, not try to be a real business, not have to write royalty checks, not have to do this and do that. And, you know, worry about Spotify, Spotify plays. I just don't give a shit about that. And doing, you know, putting together a compilation would mean having to move into that, trying to find licensing, trying to like write royalty checks, putting it in escrow, trying to promote it so that people knew about it. And then having to deal with the families of Joe Bob, who wrote some weird ass song 30 years ago, and then his family fired like, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, it was like 1990. <laughs> <That's scary. Yeah. laughs> 50 years ago, Joe Bob wrote this song, nobody gave a shit, and he only made 100 of them. Now, like you put it out into the world. And 10 people give a shit, but Joe Bob's granddaughter is really pissed that you are making billions of dollars on it, which you're not. But, you know, it just becomes this big, big hassle. The music industry is a big fucking hassle. And uh, everybody's like out to make money. And I don't give a shit about making money. So, like, why do I want to swim in those waters when I can just stay over here in the kiddie pool cranking out weird shit? That The the sharks don't care about and, you know, hopefully have have a couple of people hanging out on the on the edge of the hot tub, enjoying what I'm doing. And that's that's really like where I'm at these days as far as running the record label as
1: a as a business is that I don't run it as a business. Well, we'll uh, we'll jump in that hot tub with you.
3: Yeah. Come come on over. The water's nice. You know, after the quarantine, I'll I'll bring I'll bring the red wine spritzers. Sweet.
1: I'll drink your red wine spritzers. (laughs) Sort of a an alternative to that, I'll just kind of throw that out here. Is if you ever want to, you know, hop on the podcast and and kind of focus on private press because we did a private press episode, but we really didn't get into like the hillbilly and the country and the trucker songs. We'd love to put out something like that because that's kind of a whole whole other genre. And you could play clips of your favorite, so you're not you know ripping anybody off. Or
3: oh yeah, oh I'd I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. Do like a, yeah. Cause well, you did, you did one on trucker
1: songs, right? Yeah. And it was mostly, you know, it was mostly like kind of the main, main type store. I mean, we tried to get some of the other stuff. CW McCall and yeah. Oh yeah. Kind of maybe doing something that's somewhere, you know, more private pressy. I don't know if anybody else likes it, but that's what Joe and I are really into that sort of stuff. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to.
0: It was easier to find the information about the ones we did, kind of the Paul Major stuff where it's psych and Christian, but the country stuff, it doesn't seem like anybody's paid enough attention to it. And that's what we were really hoping to find a lot of, like outlaw country, private press. But there just isn't a lot of information out there. You have to actually go find it and make that information yourself, it seems like.
3: Yeah, there's not a lot of people that collect it or, or care. You know, with
0: with psych and soul and gospel, like black
3: gospel, especially stuff that's used in samples like there, you can find a ton of information. But, you know, there were just so many shitty country songwriters and there's just not like there aren't a lot. I think it's I think it's cycling around and there's more adventurous country fans in the last couple of years than there were 10 years ago. But, um, you know, there, there's just so much material out there and the people that are into country, especially modern country are like, they're not adventurous, you know, they want to hear things that are familiar to them. And, uh, so it's, it is pretty rare to find somebody that actually gives a shit about the really obscure, uh, country folks. And, you know, the CW McCall is my second favorite artist of all time. Uh, I've got, we, we can go into
1: a whole like story about that dude, uh, on the next podcast, but yeah, I I could talk all day about CW McCall. Well, we should do, I would like to do an episode about, about him even. Yeah. Um, Cause he's definitely interesting on his own. I think I told you one of our friends interviewed him for the Colorado magazine. I know, but we should just do a whole episode on him. Maybe we'll do that next time. Oh yeah. That'd be fun. That'd be awesome. One thing I do want to say mostly to our audience listening is even though you just said, uh, don't, you're not worried about uh capitalism selling stuff, but people need to go buy some of your stuff. Cause it's, it's great. And you know, you're such, such a nice guy. And you, I mean, t- to take time to like come to our little podcast and, and, you know, just us chatting, we've probably chatted for four or five months off and on, you know, just kind of randomly. And I bought, I, I'll just make a recommendation. I bought a record by a band called the graves just on your recommendation. And there was a great record called easy, not easy. Isn't that the name of it? And it's like amazing.
3: Well, in that record, that is one of those bucket list records that that record came out 12 years ago. It's been one of my favorite records of all time. The The guy that recorded it is a special ed teacher in Portland. He's not much of a self promoter. He's another one of those really prolific dudes that records a ton and he just incredible. But I love that record. But I knew if I released it, I would maybe sell 20 copies. But eventually I was like, you know, what? I don't even give a shit if I sell 12 copies. I want this on vinyl. I'm going and I want it in, you know, on a nice press record with big artwork. And so I just went ahead and I talked to him. I was like, look, can I just release this? And he's like, yeah, I guess if you want to. And, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite records, but you know, don't, don't get me wrong. Like I, I want to sell things, you know, I'm not like some martyr over here that doesn't,
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: you know,
3: please go buy my stuff. I want to sell this stuff, but that selling it is not my like main, the only thing I care about. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I want, I want the stuff to get out in, into the people's hands, you know, like uh, I don't make a lot of money on any of it, but usually I don't make any money on it. And I'm sitting on over a hundred thousand dollars worth of back stock that may or may not ever move. So, you know, selling that stuff helps to fund the next release. And uh, so, yeah, there, there's a ton of, interesting, uh, physical art. There's a lot of really great, you know, kind of modern pr- or press records for great bands like sugar candy mountain and the blank tapes and graves and little wings and, um, uh, gift machine. Michael now is a, as a artist that I've worked with, uh, here recently that I'm really proud of. So yeah, I'd love anybody to check it out. It's dot uh, com. Uh, that's the that's the the website for the record label. But if you go to Michael Dixon Vinyl that's sort of my main kind of portfolio, and that'll link you to all of the different things that I do. Uh, mobile vinyl recorders, lathecuts.com, the Science of Sound, which is like a kids library presentation that I do. Um, DJ Border Lord, which is my uh, DJ handle for the private press country
1: stuff. Great name,
3: <laughs> yeah, stolen from my favorite uh, Christofferson tune. But yeah, well I really appreciate you guys having me on.
1: Oh man, we can't we can't thank you enough and we'll we'll definitely make sure everybody has links up to the stuff and like I said, let's yeah, let's do CW McCall or some of that private press stuff cuz that I'm I'm kind of interested in it. So I think that'd be a great next show.
0: I'm already getting really excited about you doing that. So I want to hear some of these songs.
3: Yeah, I'll send you over some of the ones that I have digitized already and that'll give me a reason to go back through the hundreds that I bought at thrift stores in the last year that I haven't even listened to yet. Because you know a lot of times I'll just go and look at the the title. And a lot of times you can tell from the title if it's gonna be kind of generic and boring or if it's gonna be interesting and weird. And so uh, there's a lot that I've bought that I haven't even listened to yet. So I need to that'll give me an excuse to go digging during the quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> we we
1: may be doing a lot of these podcasts if we we're not out of our house in seven months. I really appreciate you taking your time. It was, this was awesome. I, it was unbelievable, really. So
0: Thank you so much, Mike. This was really wonderful.
1: All right. Likewise. All right. Talk to you soon.
0: Again, we wanted to thank Mike for giving so much of his time and being so excited to help with this episode. His enthusiasm was infectious and his knowledge boundless. We always spend a minute at the end of each show stressing the importance of spending your money on worthy, hardworking people. Mike is one of the hardest-working guys in his or any industry. So buy a Peoptic or Soiled Gold record or two, get a short-run lathe cut for your band, and spread the word. His handmade products are amazing, but more than this, he's a guy who knows and loves great music and cares about what he does. Again, the websites are com and peoptic.com, that's P-I-A-P-T-K dot com. And they are on social media and all the usual spots, as are we. And you can find us on Twitter, Instagram. Our handle on both of those is Highway High Five Pod. You can find us on Facebook. We have a page there. It has our name in it. And you can email us at highway high five Podcast at gmail.com.
1: All right. And we always want to say thank you to our podcasting network, Pantheon. Uh, Lots of great music podcasts out there, so check them out. And we appreciate everybody out there listening. And again, thanks, Mike, for taking the time to interview with us. Hopefully we'll uh, do some other cool things with Mike in the near future. All right. Take care. We'll talk soon.